0: If, you know, if I'm talking to a group of young kids on an estate, or it, I'm in a refuge, or I'm in, in a community centre, just by saying I'm a journalist, I'll get I'll get antagonism from someone, yeah, some
1: yeah. which is I mean, so far removed from the kind of the heroic journalist on the back of a tank sweeping into a war zone. That you know that that as you say that kind of image of the journalist that people are drawn to as a career.
0: Radio 4 listeners think that's what journalists do Yeah Any other, any other normal person <laughs> thinks that journalists don't, don't, oh it's true though <laughs> any other normal person just thinks that we're all a shower of shite really is what they actually think of us but Radio 4 listeners think that we kind of drop out of helicopters in war zones and <laughs> you know all of this kind of thing which obviously some of us do um, Why are you laughing at my analysis? it's just
1: because I listen to Radio 4 pretty much 24-7 <laughs>
2: welcome to the media democracy podcast with me tom mills i'm at ta underscore mills on twitter and i'm joined as ever by dan hind hello who is at Dan Hyde on Twitter. This week, we will be bringing you the first of a two-part interview with a filmmaker and broadcast journalist, Sarah O'Connell. We're going to be discussing, amongst other things, the lecture by Jon Snow, which we discussed briefly on last week's show. So maybe we should start before we go to the interview, Dan, with a little bit of background on on Jon Snow's lecture.
1: Sure. So, uh, on 23rd of August... Uh, John Snow delivered the McTaggart Lecture uh, at the Edinburgh Edinburgh Television Festival and this is a kind of annual um, keynote speech really for the industry as a whole and Snow gave a very impassioned and wide-ranging speech uh, talking really uh, fundamentally I think about what he called called the wrong side of a terrible divide um, in British society between this elite which included the media and the wider population and in this speech, he touches on a number of themes. Um, he talks quite a lot about the need for greater diversity. He stresses the, the vital importance of public service television journalism uh, in the digital age. Um, and he calls for what he calls a, a rebirth of social mobility. Um, now, one of the things that's interesting about his, his lecture is that he the, the style really is one of um, moral exhortation. He, wa- he wants to encourage the elite that he feels he's part of and who, whom he's addressing um, uh, and urge them, really, to, uh, to, to raise their game, to, to do better. Um, and he goes, he, well, at the conclusion of the speech, he says, if we in this room combine together with our colleagues and, yes, even our rivals across the world, we can prevail in the pursuit of truth. Now, this may be a, a clever strategy, but it shows, I think, something of of the style in which um, criticisms or, or debates about the media within the media or by media pat- practitioners are often conducted. Um, and we've, we've seen a very muted or limited response to his speech since then, but we're very lucky... Um, at the Media Democracy podcast to have had a, a chance for an in-depth conversation, uh, as you said at the top of the show, with Sarah O'Connell, who has a very uh, distinguished career as a television journalist, and who also wrote um, a very interesting article, which we refer to uh, in, the, in the interview that follows. Um, she's been talking about um, shortcomings in uh, the BBC for a long time. And I think it's a, I think it's a, re- a really... Um, really important contribution to the debate that I think that Jon Snow was hoping to start.
2: Yeah, okay. Um, Thanks, Dan. That was a useful introduction. So we're going to go to the interview now, the first part of the interview. We're bringing the second part next week. Uh, We recorded the interview on Wednesday this week, and so we hope you enjoy it, and particularly Dan's um, smooth introduction. So to the first part of our interview with Sarah O'Connell.
1: We're delighted to welcome Sarah O'Connell onto the show now. Sarah first came to my attention um, through an article she wrote on the Open Democracy RB strand, entitled, The BBC Has Lost Touch, Here's How It Could Reconnect. That piece was published on the 24th of May 2016, and it preempts a lot of the things that Snow talks about in, in his lecture last week, and I think goes into a great deal more detail... About some of the responses that might be made to these problems, it's, it's quite striking that it was written more than a year ago. Um, I do recommend to listeners that you that you go and read that article in full. Uh, it can be found, on, as I say, on the Open Democracy site. Um, Sarah, as a way into this, can can we talk a bit about your your background and how you you found your way into um, broadcast journalism? Am I right in thinking you started at the BBC?
0: Uh, I actually didn't start at the BBC. Hello, I should say hello first. Right, um, yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't start at the BBC. I I began my career in journalism in Arab television, actually. Um, for six months I worked in Arab television because I had some Egyptian contacts. Prior to that, I'd worked as a researcher in the House of Commons right. for an FP, and I think that's what got me through the door and into BBC news
1: you say that because there was a sense that you you'd kind of got your kind of establishment lanyard credentials kind of thing.
0: Well, it gave me connections, and I learned I, I met people that had worked in the BBC newsroom. Funnily enough, I actually saw the, the way I applied for the job is I saw an advert in Ariel, which was the BBC's magazine at the time, asking for a political researcher on the news desk in the political newsroom in Millbank. I applied for the job, I was given an interview, I was boarded, which is BBC speak for three or four people, board you at the interview, I was given the job, and it was only afterwards that I realised how unusual that process was. Because lots of people when I started the job were saying to me, who do you know in the BBC? And I realised very quickly that the reason they asked me that question was they were really asking me, who's got you this job? And so when I used to say to them, I applied, I I didn't know anyone. I was boarded and interviewed every single time I would say that I was greeted with shock.
1: That's, I mean, that's pretty extraordinary from the outset, isn't it?
0: Well, I, I didn't realise at the time of going through the interview process, I thought this was a perfectly normal process. It was only afterwards that I realised it wasn't.
1: Right. And I think, this, I think this, sort of, this sense that you need pull or you need personal connections to find your way into these media institutions is becoming more and more... Definitely.
0: It's, it's so, you know, in the newsroom where I was working, so many of my colleagues had a friend or a mother or an uncle or an aunt or their dad's friend from school who'd given them a lot, a lot of people I knew who got internships, which weren't official internships. It was come and spend the summer producing Radio 4 discussions and then go back to university. But obviously that gives you the key to the door because once you've done that, Um, When you apply, when anyone applies for jobs in journalism, what people ask is, give me some evidence that you're interested in being a journalist. Well, what better evidence than you spent the summer working for BBC Radio 4? But obviously not everyone gets the opportunity to do that. So it's a really bad filter, in my opinion.
2: Uh, It's interesting because the BBC, you know, is, is a very formal bureaucratic organisation. And yet these kind of informal networks are still clearly operating quite effectively there.
0: I would say that they're the only networks that operate effectively. I mean, how many times do you see a job advertised on, on the, you know, in the Guardian website for a BBC broadcast journalist? And I, I know the BBC do op- advertise jobs externally on their own website, but they don't go very much further than that. And I, I know personally that a great number of jobs, particularly freelance jobs, are, are given to people's friends. I, I, I know this happens.
1: I... I want to, one of the things you you mentioned in your article for Democracy is quite soon on arrival I think at the BBC. You said well there's a really interesting story about uh, what's going on in the commons with the expenses yeah. system. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that and 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 the response to it?
0: So I I was working in Parliament, administering MPs' expenses and obviously witnessing what was happening with MPs' expenses. It wasn't specific to any one MP, it was a completely general thing that everybody was billing for all kinds of things. I went and worked for Arab television for a few months and then I joined the BBC on the political news desk and it was one of the first stories that I pitched. Um, Obviously, I hadn't got any prior experience in journalism so when somebody says to me, that's not a story, and you've only done a few months in journalism. I, I, I knew it was a story, but I, I just left it. Okay, it's not a story. But I'd gone to the news desk and pitched and said that I knew that MPs were going out having what I considered to be very extravagant lunches, costing hundreds of pounds, taking colleagues, researchers, you know, people that they were meeting and doing business with um and and they were billing it all through the expenses i knew i knew about bathrooms being refurbished on expenses all the stuff that came out years and years later i was told unequivocally this is not a story mps have to eat and i I knew it was a story but if, if you're ready to tell you that's not a story that's the end of that and of course 10 years later I saw it all come out. And it interested me on another level, that story, because Heather Brooks made a comment at the time. I mean, she got very little credit for the story, to be fair, because everybody else got credit, but it was her her story. And I think she made a very interesting point about British journalism at that time that was missed by a lot of people. And the point she made was that British journalism worked almost exclusively off contacts and American journalism, because she was American, I think, or Canadian, I'm not sure... And she, she made the point that American journalism worked off data. And that's why she'd looked for that story and, and looked for the data on the expenses. Now, I don't think one of those is better than the other. The mm-hmm. best journalism is a combination of data and contacts and people that are telling you stories. But she made the point that British journalism over relies on contacts, and I would agree with that. Um, but I think the contacts British journalists have aren't providing them with the stories that we should be covering.
2: Yeah. Just, Sarah, that was early on in your career, but just to uh, just outline for listeners um, uh, the progression of your career at the BBC from there.
0: So I worked originally, I, I began my career in the BBC in news planning, um, which was in the press gallery, pl- planning the news basically, the political news. I moved from there to the political research unit, I did a bit of field producing, I worked on a couple of radio programmes, just short term, Watto and PM Show. And then I went to the political research unit, where, I mean, I'll give the BBC the due, I cut my research teeth in that unit and I learned some absolutely fantastic skills and also the standards of accuracy that we have to adhere to, that's where I, I, I cut my teeth on all of that. And then I went from there to Panorama I worked on Panorama for a couple of years, and then I made a film for BBC Two, um, which was an 18-month film on heroin addicts and um, crack cane and heroin dealers, and then after that film, I left the BBC and I went freelance.
1: And you are back at the the BBC now, is that
0: correct? Yeah, I freelance now, so I'm actually working for BBC News right now as a freelancer, yeah, making two films for them.
1: Okay, Great. So, should we turn now quickly to talk a, a, about Snow's lecture? I mean, what were your, what were your immediate impressions when you, when you heard it or you saw, you saw his, his speech?
0: If I'm honest, my, in, which, which a lot of my journalist friends have told me I'm wrong to feel like this, if I'm honest, when I first heard John Snow's speech, I felt horror. Um because I I like Jon Snow as a journalist. I think he's a good journalist, but I was I was incredibly shocked to learn that he'd not been in a tower block in thirty years as a journalist. I probably go in a tower block on average once every six months sometimes more sometimes less but I've definitely gone in a lot of tower blocks in my work as a journalist but when I've expressed this opinion to my journalist friends of which I've got many um you know quite a few of them have said don't be so harsh at least he's being honest and at least he's speaking out and I agree with that at least he's speaking out but my immediate reaction is too little too late yes I
1: mean it 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 pro- it's probably it's probably the case that quite a lot of your journalist friends haven't been in many tower blocks recently, in any ways.
0: Happens the, the majority. I mean, it's not what he's saying is, is not unusual for, for the. Average. I mean, he made that point himself. I think when he asked the room, how many of you have been in tower blocks? I noticed he made the point on um, Radio Four on the Today program when he asked Nick Robinson. Um, and, and I know Nick Robinson, and I like Nick Robinson, I used to work with him in the political newsroom, but he neatly sidestepped answering that question. Um, we should we should acknowledge it head on. You know, if, if, if this is the way we're operating and working, and we're all doing the same thing, we need to acknowledge that. So John Snow's speech, in one sense, was a step forward, because it was an acknowledgement of where we are in British journalism.
1: One of the striking things about it, to me, was, was how little, in the way of of a response. There has been so far. There have been articles by um, Preston and Simon Kellner, I think, that I've, I've noticed. Um, but there hasn't been a great flurry of debate and discussion prompted by it, as far as I can tell. Now, I haven't seen everything, and I may be being unfair, but do you think there is a reticence amongst journalists to talk about their their trade as a trade? And if there is, you know, why, where is that coming from, do you think?
0: I, I definitely think that there's a reticence. Or I think there's, a, there's not a reticence amongst journalists to talk about the trade. My God, have you ever been for dinner with a journalist? Sure. <laughs> to you all that about what they do for a living. They're quite happy to tell you all their glamorous war stories or their drugs and heroin and prostitute stories. That, they're not reticent to talk about that. What I think they are reticent to do is to address their own privilege and to acknowledge that a newsroom that is full of privately educated wealthy people, that's not a fair representation and I don't think that they're prepared to acknowledge that, I think they're very reticent about that and I think that my bosses um, across the industry, not just the BBC, across the whole industry, they're not willing to acknowledge any sexism or racism or classism on, on their behalf despite the fact that if you look round any of the national mainstream newsrooms, they will be densely populated with privileged, upper-middle-class white men who've been privately educated. So obviously something's at work, and people aren't getting jobs for the right reasons, but no-one will acknowledge that. Nobody wants to hold the hand up and say, I'm guilty. Nobody. But they are guilty.
2: Um, so Jon Snow, the big theme of his speech was to do with the attachment of journalism to the elite to what extent do you think that could be addressed by more diversity within like recruiting practices?
0: Would the, Are you asking me if they changed recruitment, would it work? or Are you saying if they changed recruitment and it did work, would the outcome of journalism be different?
2: Yeah, well, if, if recruitment practices were um, were fairer, to what extent do you think the, some of the problems with journalism would, would resolve themselves?
0: I think it would make a huge difference. Um, what What we see on the national news at the moment is largely viewed through the prism of privilege. Um, so people don't understand um, poverty, for example, they may well go and do a story on, oh, look at this woman, she's been sanctioned, she can't pay her, she can't pay her rent and she's not got any food. But to me, um, it's the unrel- unrelenting nature of poverty that is, is what bites people. It's not a snapshot of a week, It's it's a lifetime or years of that problem. Now, if you've come from a a, a home where you've never run out of electricity, your mother's never, ever worried about paying a bill, um, you sailed through university, you didn't have to work in a bar pulling pints in order to pay your rent, um, I just don't think you can, unless you're incredibly empathetic, um, I just don't think you can understand um, the, the, the problems and the worries and the concerns and the obstacles that people face So if you had um, a more diverse newsroom with more diverse journalism, it starts at the beginning, doesn't it? It starts with our stories that we cover. What do we choose to cover and why? If you have, um, say, three young black voices, two working-class voices, um, you know, whatever, five women and three men, you will see a difference because as a woman, um, I... I'm really interested in stories about rape investigations, um, domestic violence, things that impact on on women. And I will put those stories forward. Um, But if I'm putting them forward to a posh white man, um, the chances of them getting taken are not very high on on his agenda because he doesn't come across these things and and they don't impact on his life and he doesn't sit and have dinner or break bread with people that that are suffering these things. So I, I actually think it would make... A huge difference I don't think it's the only thing that's wrong um but it's one of the things
1: I, I mean I would jump in here as well in the, I mean I, I think demography just listening to you talk I think demography as it were in you know, the background does really matter I I vividly remember having conversations 10 years ago with, with book editors about the housing market and how dysfunctional it was becoming and and how we needed to commissioned some books about what was going on in housing and these were people who bought houses 20 years before yeah. in London and were sitting on huge kind of paper asset gains and I yeah. could just see the incomprehension in their eyes they were like I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I don't understand why you think housing is a problem <laughs> and, um, about
0: years ago I worked for the Guardian and one of the senior editors at the Guardian and there's many senior editors so I'm not naming anyone in particular put their hand on my arm and said let's face it darling we've all paid off our mortgages now I've not paid my mortgage off yeah. I'm lucky enough to have one yeah. um, which puts me in the privileged set anyway considering I live in London but I've not paid my mortgage off I've got a good 10 years left on my mortgage and it, it just I've never forgotten this woman saying it to me because I just thought you actually believe that yeah. like, you actually believe everybody's paid the mortgages off not true um, most people don't even have a mortgage but that
1: was the bubble that she lived in. Yeah, I mean, you know, the lo- last few months there has been much more focus on, on the, you know, the, and actually, to be fair, in the last couple of years. But it, it's been blindingly obvious if you've been a relatively young person living in London, that, that the housing market in London is broken. But I think a lot of the people who are making decisions about coverage... Our home, kind of, they feel that home free, so it just simply does not feature as a as an issue. So your point, I think, you know, your point about editorial, you know, diversity of views is, yeah, it, it, it is crucial in some ways.
0: It's, it's must important because if you're in an editorial meeting and you're the lone voice. So if you're if you're in the meeting with ten journalists and say it's Panorama, for example, yeah, and there's you know, twenty of you sat around and it's like, right, pitch stories, everyone pitch stories. If you're the lone voice, it's much harder to persuade the editor that this is a story. If there's, if you say something and two or three people are like, "Yeah, that's a good idea. That's really happening," you you're winning. You, you know, you've got his interest. If you're the only person saying it, he doesn't think it's a story.
1: No, you're right. And we are, you know, we are we're sort of herd animals, aren't we? So, you yeah. know, unless you're saying something that does resonate with people quite quickly, they'll be they'll often think, "Actually, you know what? I'll bite my tongue here. I don't want to." I'm yeah, and ed- editors onto... are
0: human beings as well. They've got jobs, you know. They don't want to commission stories that aren't relevant, um, and they are relevant, but they can't see that. I, I, I don't think there's as much. Um, I don't think it's malevolent on behalf of the bosses. Mm. It's just it's not their world.
1: I think. As, so why would you cover it? I think as well. I mean, there, there's an issue around the you know the the the, the status like the rank of people in, in a meeting and their backgrounds. I mean, I vividly remember presenting a book and the, the, the head of the department and their deputy were Americans and they both said, this sounds, this sounds too American for us. And it was like, there was a very timid response from all the people who were born in England saying, no, no, it's fine, it, it, it will find a market in England. And it well, was, people were quite reluctant to sort of challenge their boss even when they've got absolutely no grounds for thinking something.
0: Well, they are, but my, my book bear with this is These journalists are meant to be able to challenge as well, you know, we are actually supposed to fight for our corner, you know, we're supposed to comfort the afflicted, we should be able to defend ourselves and our own stories, but um, people don't have, I mean, I think it's a problem with journalism, I think a lot of people now are attracted to broadcast journalism because it's television and they see glamorous photographs of people studying war zones with scarves flapping in the wind and a flak jacket on, and that's what they think journalism is. And, you know, I do question now why a lot of people enter journalism. Um, I I think maybe 50 years ago, people entered journalism. You know, local kids, working-class kids worked the way up on the local paper and had different ideas. Journalism never used to be a glamorous profession. Um, And it became a glamorous profession. And I think once that happened, particularly television news, of which it's huge, isn't it? It's everywhere, television news. I think it attracted... I mean, this is just, a, some. I'm guessing this, but I think it attracted a different kind of person who who wasn't attracted to the idea of standing up to the powerful and speaking truth to them and holding people accountable and comforting the afflicted and all of this. That That wasn't why they entered journalism. They entered journalism because they wanted to be famous. They wanted to be on television. They knew that the money was good. I mean, this is just my guesswork, but I definitely feel that's at play in in my end of the industry.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, it. Think... F- Sorry, Tom, very quickly, just, just on that, the, yeah. there's a, there was a study done on soft power, and, and Britain came very high in the league, may even have topped the leagues, in mm. terms of this sort of very weird notion of soft power. But one of the things I identified as an important element in Britain's soft power was the BBC, and I think a lot of the people who now gravitate towards BBC journalism they 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 have quite a lot in common with the kinds of people who go into diplomacy uh, go into the sort of fast stream of the civil service and they do i think they're very they're very deeply sort of marinated in in a in a kind of british elite ideology which we've talked about in previous shows but tom i i, I headed you off so so do come in yeah i was just going to say that there does seem to have been
2: a a kind of a, a change in the kinds of people who go into journalism i mean what what happened in the nineteen late nineteen eighties and early nineteen nineties was a sort of concerted effort to bring in people who were seen as being experts, which, which more or less meant you know PPE type backgrounds and people who were attracted to I think a different sort of journalism and a different sort of journalistic ethics of the sort of thought which which you've been talking about, Sarah.
0: You know, I meet a lot of young journalists who um, I I don't go on camera. I've never ever wanted to be on camera. I've been offered that opportunity. I've turned it down um that, that's not why i became a television journalist to be on camera but i meet an inordinate amount of young people who might be researching or doing some like you know like low key producing and their ultimate aim is to get themselves on television that's what they want they want to be on television what kind of aim is that for a journalist i i, I, I just can't get my head around that
2: yeah, yeah cool. there was definitely a shift actually um in, in the pert period towards the idea of like, I think the journalist is somebody who editorializes and and offers expert themselves offering expert opinion rather than some rather than the kind of um, craft that you're uh, the sort of way that you've described it as as allowing other people to tell a story and do the research and piece things together.
0: I just see myself. So I think conduit, a, a, a means of X speaking to Y. That mm. that's ha- absolutely how I how I see my job. That's you don't want to know what it? I have to say if I'm reporting it. It's not I'm not the interesting person because it's such an interesting job to so many people. So and, and it feeds our egos, and I, I know this myself. You know I'm not immune to this. Um, so if I'm at a dinner party and I might have a home office advisor on one side and a consultant psychiatrist on the other, or whoever, I can stop the table because people say, "What do you do?" And if I say so I was in a brothel last week doing a film about prostitutes. I can stop the table everybody yeah. wants to know everything about what I'm doing so we get our egos fed constantly um, and, and then we, we're glamorised on television you know we feature in Hollywood movies, as saving the day it's always the journalist that comes in and saves the day and um, and I think a lot of us my colleagues and myself as well I'm not immune to this, you, you start buying this PR you know you start thinking god I am amazing, am I, amazing? <laughs> I, I can do anything it's true I'm just being honest I'm just being honest It's it's You know, if people are constantly telling you you've got an amazing job. And even yesterday I was on the phone to Vodafone trying to sort out my um, phone line and the guy said, what do you do? I said, I'm a journalist. He went, oh my God, that's so interesting. (laughs) If you get told that all the time, you start believing it. You start believing
2: it. I think that's got to be a major element of what attracts people to the BBC as well. BBC in particular, I think, is the kind of prestige that attaches to it. Uh, Of course. um, You know, it it really does have a kind of... um, yeah, a real kind of weightiness to it, saying you work for the BBC. I think it always has.
0: It has a huge weight to it. And also, what any journalist knows who's worked for the BBC is it opens doors for you. I mean, it depends what programme you're working on, because when I worked on Panorama, the, the words I'm calling from BBC Panorama probably slammed as many doors shut as it did open right. them. But it's it, it, and it will else, open yeah. doors. And obviously, as a journalist, if a door slams shut in your face, you like that. I I enjoy that. When someone does that to me, I think, ah, why are you doing something. that? Yeah. What's going yeah. to cover yeah. up? Um, so of course it gives you a huge sense of power, but it's it's really not a misplaced sense of power because journalists are incredibly powerful. We are incredibly powerful. Not only do we inform the public but on an individual basis, we can change the outcomes just by being there. You know, if someone's being treated badly with the housing and, and they can say, Well I've got I'm talking to BBC News, guaranteed. That the, the, what happens will change because once people start getting watched, they change the behavior and so it, 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 we are powerful there's no denying that we're very powerful
1: i mean that's a really interesting point and it and I think this this touches on the real you know the, this real issue of a social distance between journalists and and the people they're supposedly covering and they're supposedly producing content for mm-hmm. I, I think in one of your 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 notes to us, so you said uh, you know sometimes you listen to people being how they're how they're talked to by yeah. council officials and so on. Yeah. and I think yeah, this, I, do, I mean, do you want to talk a bit about that? Because it really caught my eye as something that that I think should we should sort well, of think about.
0: According to our rules of broadcast journalism, we can't um, secretly record anyway without prior editorial consent so it's not something everyone thinks we can just do that randomly it's not something that we can do so when i'm listening to these phone calls i'm not doing it because i can use this material in um i mean if i'm honest one of the reasons i do it is because i i know the person opposite me is desperate to be to be believed And, and i believe them anyway already but i i know they're used to everyone going no no it's not like that so i hear lots of people um all walks of life, but obviously the disadvantaged or the poor or what, what, the working class, whatever you want to refer to them as. And they get a very, very raw deal um, from councils, from the police, from social services, even from the NHS. I've had run-ins with doctors about the way that they've spoken to people that have been filming when they didn't know they were being filmed. And so I, I will listen to people who ring the council And they put them on speakerphone and I will listen to what is said. And to say I am horrified by the way people are spoken to would be a huge understatement. If people were speaking to me like that twice a day and it was about my housing, it was about where I was going to sleep that night, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if people just walked out under a bus because it's appalling, and obviously this person in the council doesn't know that I'm listening. Yeah. They, they, so they're just carrying on like they always carry on. And, you know, sometimes on occasion I, I've rung people an hour later and I've, I get a completely different person on the phone. I get a completely different person. I get someone who borders on deference, who's absolutely polite to me, um, treats me with respect, listens to what I'm saying, um, takes it into account basically I get the completely opposite experience of the person who i have listened to an hour before. And I, I was just chatting about this actually about an hour ago, not in relation to this podcast, but we saying I was, I was with a woman who's um, suffered domestic violence and she's part of the film and she was talking about this. And I was telling her that sometimes I listen to people's calls and that I think it's cathartic for people because once they know, I know once they, they, they can see I've heard it at, they know I understand. They know that I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to say, "Well, is it really that bad? Are they really that rude?" Right. Um, well, maybe you're, maybe
1: you're being a bit paranoid, right? That like the yeah. people yeah. will like, and it's, it's a terrible thing about privilege is that you will you'll you'll compound the injury by not believing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Carol. It's yeah.
0: difficult for for me, for you, and um, you know the, the three of us in this conversation. We get spoken to politely. People take us seriously, um, it, you know. If we ring up, and, and we know how to make a phone call, you know, we know how to ring up, and say hello, my name, I would like to speak to. Some people aren't even capable of doing that, and that's not a criticism. You know, some people are so broken and yeah. frightened and scared and vulnerable that they don't even know how to find the number for the council. What well, once they found the number for the council, they, they, they can't put a sentence together, and that is not a criticism. Um, I understand that that's the way people can feel. We don't have that experience. Mm -hmm. You know, when when I'm walking down the road and see a police car, I don't panic and think, are they going to arrest me? Are they going to stop and search me? Um, People have a completely different experience to the ones that you, um, me, all of us. I mean, Jon Snow's point about we are the elite is a good one. And I think lots of people like to think, I'm not really in the elite, my mother was a nurse, and um, you know whatever rubbish. Yeah, I, I'm a part of the elite. I I, I might not accept yeah. it, but I am. I am, I, and we I mean, need to accept that. We need to accept that we're a part of the elite. And before we do that, we need to accept that the elite exists.
1: It's a good good rule of thumb, isn't it? To think how am I how am I treated if I walk into a letting agency or you know a, a public services office like how do people treat me and as you say if you're treated like a human being and you're treated like as a rational agent you're probably quite privileged because an awful lot of people walk in there and they are treated like a nuisance and and actually i've seen people where they realize that they can they treat people with straightforward contempt
0: i've seen that many i've heard it i've seen it yeah i've seen it when people have no idea because i don't volunteer to people quite a lot of the time the knowledge that i'm a journalist if i'm in a benefits office i don't lie because i'm not allowed to lie um so if someone asks me straight out are you a member of the press i would 100% say yes i am i never get asked are you a member of the press i get asked are you a key worker Are you a social worker? Are you in health services? I have never been asked in my entire life, are you a journalist? Well, that tells you one thing, is that none of these um, professionals in in, in these organisations and agencies expect this young gang member or this young victim of domestic violence to walk in with a journalist. Because they don't even ask me if I am a member of the press. That's the last thing that they would expect, which is to show that no one's doing it. You know, that should be the first question that, hang about it, is this a member of the press? They never ask me. Never, never ask me. So I will stand and witness things that, and sometimes of course later I'll ring up and go, by the way I'm a journalist and then you feel silence come at you down the other end of the phone because this person realises what they've done.
1: Yeah. Some people some people no people are, are, are wicked to people just because they can be, I think, sometimes. Um, now no. this brings us, I think, neatly on to... Um, a couple of the things that you talk about, both in the article and um, uh, in a later note you sent to Tom and I, ab- uh, about the ways in which you think the practice of broadcast journal- j- journalism might be changed, you-, you talk a bit about the idea of sort of developing new kinds of knowledge through um, through mentoring, through uh, having an open door kind of drop in um function and, and by going out on the road can you talk a bit of, a bit more about these ideas and, and how you've seen them in operation in other contexts
0: well but as far as the mention i mean i've thought about this for years i really have and i spoke to a few people about it in various you know mps and this that and the other and got positive vibes by. i i i accept that there's a disconnect between national mainstream news journalists and the working classes it for want of a better description. And I also accept that national journalists, news journalists, they don't they don't know how to change it, is what I think. They don't know how to go and speak to people. And even if they've got the will, they don't know how to do it. They don't know where to go and who to link into and they're a bit scared. They might get a bit of abuse or be intimidated. So I've always um, thought that journalists should mentor. So a, so a lot of what I do in my job um, is if I'm interviewing a gang member or um, someone who's homeless or things like that during the making of the film or that whatever it is I'm doing, I, I won't influence the outcome because that's not my job to influence the outcome. My job is to record what happens and, and to have it representative of what happens in normal life. But as soon as I finished doing that, um, if this young lad or young woman you know says to me i've got a real problem with the housing they've sent me an eviction notice i can't get um, a lawyer there's no legal aid then i then i will step in and I, and i'll try and help and and that might just be ringing one of my lawyer contacts ringing one of my housing lawyer contacts and saying you know, like I've got this case. Do you think that you might be able to help, or it might be me walking into a a, a benefits meeting at ben, the benefits agency and standing next to someone and, and helping them get benefits. Just just my presence there can change the outcome. And I I'm speaking as my presence, not as a journalist, but as someone from the middle classes who's articulate, intelligent, obviously educated, and I I do this. I don't know, I probably do it at least at least once a week, I'll, I'll do something like that I write references for kids that can't get references, they've never had proper jobs they need a reference to get a job, I do all of this kind of thing, I really really think um, that BBC News should think about this, and I, I don't see why um, that the journalists can't take up this kind of mentoring I'm only talking about like once a month, this kind of commitment um, what the journalist gets out of it I mean it's quite obvious what the young gang member or the homeless person gets out of it, um, but what the journalist gets out of it is a completely different level of understanding of the problems that these people face, because most of the people that I interview and work with in films, they don't just have one problem, they don't just have a housing issue, they will have the whole myriad of, of issues that are related to being yeah. poor, um, homeless, abused, they'll have the whole range and I think as journalists, when we approach someone and say, right now I'm making a film on domestic violence and I, and I meet a woman, what I'm interested in for my film is her domestic violence story. I'm not interested in the rest of it, really, because it doesn't relate to what I'm doing as, as a journalist. But I, I think, I think we, we miss that so regularly. We miss that understanding. And if we could do things like that, oh, I, I think the PR for news orgs as well would be incredible. Because as was shown in Grenfell, when when we went down as journalists to Grenfell Tower, so many of my colleagues were absolutely horrified by the um, reception that people gave them. They genuinely believed that they were going to get a nice reception. I, I would never have expected a nice reception from the residents of Grenfell Tower. But they didn't understand. My, lots of my colleagues just did not understand that they were loathed and despised. And the people in Grenfell Tower, they knew, they knew, that we didn't have the first clue about what they've been going through. This chasm has to be bridged. It has to be bridged, and there has to be a way of doing it. And I think to connect people through through mentoring, um, it you know it's a valuable way of doing it. And we as journalists, I get loads of my stories from people like that because they'll ring me up afterwards and go, Sarah, this happened last week. I I don't know if it's a story for you. They they don't know. They don't recognize stories, but I do. And I get lots and lots of stories like that. And the the only thing it comes from is trust. This person trusts me Mm. and believes I have their best interests at heart. And that's the way you get stories, and that's the way you get information, and that's the way you get people ringing you up and, and giving you giving you stuff to, to work on. And I really think that a lot of my colleagues don't have that. In fact, I know a lot of my colleagues don't have that because I get regular phone calls from colleagues saying, "Can you fix me up with that? And do you know anyone that does that? Any of them, my friends, I'll help them. and If they're not my friends, they can get lost. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's not an uncommon occurrence for me. Um, I've Hello. got actually. No, wait. That's... Go on. Sorry.
2: Yeah, I was just saying, in a way what you're describing, you know, it does happen in, at the high level of British journalism, but it's just the kinds of people who they embedded with and informally networking, with and building up expertise and knowledge and all the rest of it, it's just a completely different subset of people. I mean, the, the problem is that they are doing that with the elite. You know, Nick Robinson, is, of course, he's spending his time building up these kinds of networks just with, at the opposite end of the social spectrum, if you like. Well, and he's built... Way, what you're suggesting, you know, it's you know, it's good journalism. It's what you should be doing as a journalist, building up your knowledge and understanding of what you're supposed to be covering. It's just, yeah, with a a different set of people, I suppose.
0: Well, I, I mean, I think. What we're supposed—I mean—we're supposed to hold power to account, aren't we? I, I know that not all journalists are the same, and I know that if you're a sports journalist or if you're an entertainment journalist or a fashion journalist, you're not supposed to hold power to account. I understand the difference, but I'm—I work in the public interest. You know, right now I'm taking money from BBC News, um, and I'm supposed to hold the powerful to account. That is something I see as a fundamental part of my role. It, it, if you're not meeting anyone subjected to oppression through the powerful how do you know who to hold to account because as far as you're concerned if you're networking with diplomats and politicians and other journalists nobody's suffering anything I, I think the point that Jon Snow made in his speech that everybody in that room doesn't even feel the impact of austerity I mean, I haven't really felt the impact of austerity. It's not affected my benefits because I don't get benefits. It's not affected my housing because I have a mortgage. Um, You know, I'm in the same boat as all of my colleagues. So, yeah, sure, they're networking with um, the upper echelons, but quite frankly, they've been doing that since birth, haven't they? Let's be honest. You know, like they were networking at the prep school and at the secondary school and and at Eton and Harrow. And I'm not saying this in an embittered, our silly way, it, it's just a fact. Yeah.
1: So what ju- you're what you're proposing, Sarah, is a is an is a model of public service journalism where journalists actually serve the public.
0: Yes. <laughs> How bizarre right?
1: Which, I I yes. don't know whether the, I don't know whether people can get their heads around that because it just seems it seems such too a stretch. Too much. <laughs>